Isaiah 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To teach and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they have divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you. Well, thanks, Rene. Morning, friends. It'd be great if you could have that uh, passage open in your Bibles.
Do you join me as we pray, as we come to God's word now? Our gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Please make us hungry for this heavenly food. And please let it nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. In his name, amen. Well, Des alluded to it in our prayers, there doesn't seem to be a lot in our world that makes a lot of sense at the moment. Turn on the news or open a Facebook feed, and I think that's true. You know, in, in little over a week, militant Islamic fundamentalists have dismantled a fragile democracy uh, in, in the Middle East, which has taken Western nations 20 years to build up and maintain. And we've seen the pictures at, at Kabul airport with people rushing the gates of, of aircraft and clinging to, clinging to aircraft as they take off. And the rest of the world looks on in disbelief. In the small poor nation of Haiti in the Western Atlantic, uh, last week a 7.2 magnitude earthquake has already caused 2,000 deaths and untold devastation. And this is a country that is still recovering from the assassination of their president last month uh, and from a, uh, an earthquake in 2010 that killed over 200,000 people and caused billions of dollars of damage. And now they're recovering from a tropical storm as well. What explanation could we possibly give for what's going on? And of course, we have the global pandemic of COVID-19 with uh, four and a half million deaths worldwide and lockdowns and the race for vaccination and perhaps more questions than answers. And it's, it's fundamentally changed the way we live, even down to the way we come to church. Maybe it's even changed all that stuff permanently. And who knows where we even start to make sense of any of that. Now, our Bible passage from the book of Isaiah today doesn't give us specific answers for the riddles of life this side of Genesis chapter 3, but it does tell us how to cope, what to do, how to think. Last week in chapter 7, uh, we saw King Ahaz and his people. They were terrified. They were shaking like the, the, the trees of the forest shake before the wind because of the invasion of two enemy nations. And the Lord gave a, pro, a, a challenge to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, verse 9. He said, if you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. And of course, because Ahaz proved himself faithless, the Lord promised judgment in the form of an invasion from Syria, Assyria as well, as well as Syria and Israel. And this invasion would destroy their enemies, but it would almost destroy them as well. Now, chapters 7 to 10, they're all part of the same block of prophetic material. So we're still dealing with a nation that is uh, suffering the devastation of war on their northern borders. And now dealing with the fear of a promised invasion by one of the superpowers of the day. Only this time, the word of the Lord is aimed at Isaiah and his disciples rather than Ahaz and the people of Judah more generally. And while the word to Ahaz was, have faith in the Lord, not in man, that's you or anyone else, the word to Isaiah and his disciples is, fear the Lord, not the things of this world. 
So as we, as we move through today's text, we're going to discover the remedy for fear in three parts. And I, I thought about calling it the vaccination for fear, but it's a bit loaded. Let's say remedy for fear this morning. And the remedy is there on the outline if you've got it in front of you. Fear the Lord, cling to his word, and hope in his son. Fear the Lord, cling to his word, and hope in his son. Now, the first part of the vision begins with the Lord getting personal with Isaiah. So this is verse 11 of chapter 8. Please follow with me. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, notice that even Isaiah needed a strong hand from the Lord to remind him of the danger of living like the rest of the world. Remember, this is, this is Isaiah who's had a vision of the holy God in his temple. And he's been prepared and he's been commissioned for God's service. But even Isaiah needed reminding not to give in to the temptation to fear and fret when he turned on the morning news. Now, just to point out, there's two different Israels that are starting to emerge at this point in the book. And the gap is growing all the time. One group is the faithless people of Israel, and they're kind of represented and led by Ahaz. And the other group is the faithful people of Israel, and they're kind of represented and led by Isaiah. Same nation, two entirely different groups of people. But just like Ahaz's knowledge of the Bible in chapter 7, verse 12, was no guarantee of a living faith, Isaiah's faith in God was no guarantee that he wouldn't be tempted to give in to fear. Now, over the last 18 months or so, how many faithful, intelligent Christians have you known have been sucked into conspiracy theories and other things out of fear. I've known a few. And it's drawn them away from a firm trust in the Lord. Of course, when we're afraid, we're often tempted to assume that someone's hiding something from us. And if only we could figure out what it is, if only we had some sort of inside track to make sense of everything, then we could be at peace again, or so we think anyway. And if we can't figure it out, well, what's the alternative? Is it just don't be afraid? Was uh, the American President Roosevelt right when, in his inauguration speech, the famous speech in 1932, when he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? Is that the problem? I think the Bible says that Roosevelt was dead wrong. Because God identifies the problem for Isaiah. He doesn't, say, no, no, he doesn't say the problem's fear. He says the problem is where you're placing your fear. Misplaced fear. So look with me at verse 13. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And remember, he's talking to the faithful here. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. 
a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. In other words, don't be afraid of the things the world's afraid of. Be afraid of the Lord. Now, I know we struggle with this language when it comes to talking about God. We, uh, we try to soften it by saying, oh, when it says fear, it means we must uh, respect God, or we must revere God, rather than we should actually be afraid of him. After all, isn't God a God of compassion and love and fatherly care? Well, yes, he is those things. But the Bible doesn't let us do that here. When a faithful disciple like Isaiah is told in verse 13, let the Lord be your dread, that's actually what it says. And you know, from what we've seen in Isaiah so far, what the Lord is willing to do in judgment on his own people's sin, it should cause us to fear. Not to be afraid like we might be afraid of a, you know, a, a dangerous animal who might do something unexpected, something dangerous and unexpected. But no, no, afraid because God actually might do what he's promised to do in judging sin. And yes, he is a God of overwhelming compassion and mercy and love. It's been shown in Isaiah so far, back in chapter 1, where he's inviting the people to come and reason with him and we'll deal with your sin. He's shown it clearly by giving his son Jesus for us, pouring out that, that fearful side of his personality on Christ. But that doesn't ever mean that God becomes a great big softy. He's still the holy God of Isaiah chapter 6, and he always will be. Even on the other side of the cross, you go to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, the early church, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they lie about what they put in the church collection plate, and God strikes them dead. The Bible tells us that great fear came upon the whole church. Acts 5 verse 11. They feared God because of what he was willing to do in response to sin among his own people. And of course, Ananias and Sapphira themselves, they had a misplaced fear. We don't know exactly what was behind their, their lie. But clearly they were more afraid of losing out on some cash then they were afraid of sinning by lying to God. And only God knows where they went when they died, but remember, when they, were, when they died, they were part of the church. I certainly hope that God's not going to strike anyone dead when they uh, don't put what they say they'll put in the collection plate. I don't think that's the point. But are we ever more afraid of losing out on something than we are afraid of the consequences of not being honest to God? Or are we ever more afraid of not satisfying our wants and our desires than we're more afraid of the consequences of disobeying God? Are we ever more afraid of the powers and agendas of the world around us, both seen and unseen, than we're afraid of the Lord God Almighty, the holy creator and judge of heaven and earth? You know, didn't, didn't Jesus say to his disciples, I tell you, friends, 
Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, if you're taking notes. And let's also be very careful of hiding our own worldly fears behind a pretended fear of God as well. I think in the times we're living now, it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to kick against perhaps reasonable things the government is asking us to do, citing a fear of God, when in reality the thing we fear is losing our own personal sense of freedom. It's selfish, actually. Now, I know I'm being quite blunt here, and the point is not whether or not the government's got everything right, because they probably don't. But the point is fearing the Lord. Is our fear of the Lord what comes first? Is our fear of the Lord what guides everything we do and the way we think, the way we speak? The point is fearing the Lord, honoring him alone as holy, and letting him be our fear and our dread. Verse 13. Now, This is not supposed to make a bunch of terrified and anxious and neurotic Christians. It's quite the opposite, actually. It is, though, a serious warning to be honest about where our fears really are and then get them in the right order. We are likely to face some very, very scary things in our time, facing some very scary things now. But there's a great danger in a misplaced fear of having those fears out of balance, And as Isaiah continues in verse 14 and 15, for those who put their fear of the Lord first, before any other fear, he will be a sanctuary. He'll be a refuge. He'll be a safe place forever from all of those things which make us afraid now. But for those who don't, for those who don't put their fear in the Lord... Well, they're in for a very rude awakening because the Lord himself will become a stone of stumbling and an offense to them, a trap and a snare. And those who fail to fear will eventually be broken and trapped. Of course, the New Testament picks up this language in reference to Jesus. Fear the Lord. Our second point is cling to his word. As we said, we're seeing a growing distinction in Isaiah between the faithful people and the unfaithful people. Both part of the same nation, but their faith and their fears set them apart. Where they place their faith, where they place their fear. The difficulty for the faithful remnant, though, is of the people gathered around Isaiah is that the Lord seems to be inaccessible and silent. So in verse 17, he's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. So what are you meant to do when you're trying to fear God and live his way in his world when, and honor him as holy, but everything around you is still going crazy and you're afraid and your prayers seem to be bouncing off the ceiling and nothing changes and the Lord seems like he's gone on holiday? Well, the answer is there in the next section, and the answer is to cling to his word. So verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. 
I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Cling to the word of the Lord and wait for him, hope in him. And you know, it's, it's just as well that Isaiah's disciples did that so that we've got the stuff we can read today. They clearly did uh, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. We can read these things and see how they point to the Lord Jesus. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to go into all the New Testament connections, but if you've got a a Bible with cross-references, you'll start to see all sorts of little uh, connections going off here with things that are said in the New Testament about Jesus. And just to say, the children Isaiah is talking about are his own two kids we met in chapter 7 and 8, the beginning of chapter 8, the kids who were called a remnant shall return, and the prey hastens. Isaiah saw them as signs of God's promises of judgment and salvation, which are two major themes in his, in his prophecy. And the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament sees them as a foreshadowing of Jesus, Hebrews 12 verse th- 2 verse 13. Now, again, we see a blinding contrast between the faithful people of God and the unfaithful. What do the unfaithful do when God is nowhere to be found? And I guess when when their conspiracy theories in verse 12 don't help them to sleep well at night. What do they do? Well, they turn to mysticism and the occult. You see, when they can't find answers among the living, they seek answers among the dead. And they'll encourage the faithful to do the same. So verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's not a good ending, is it? But by contrast, where are the faithful meant to go? Well, to the teaching and to the testimony. Inquire of God in his word. Now, I'd say most of us are probably not in danger of uh, looking up a medium to contact a dead aunt when we can't find answers to the things in the world around us. I mean, that said, we are on the Sunshine Coast and mysticism is kind of part of the culture here. But as I was preparing the message, you know, I couldn't help but see there's parallels here between inquiring on the dead, of the dead on behalf of the living, and the way we get so easily sucked into the rabbit holes on the internet to answer the riddles of life in the 21st century. You know, think about Isaiah's day. No matter how good the show was and how convincing they might be, it's virtually impossible to establish the credibility of these mediums and necromancers. But you know, no matter how good the show might be and how convincing things might seem, it's often very difficult to establish the credibility of many YouTube experts and blog authorities 
in our own day. And of course, the anonymity of the internet means we don't really know who's often speaking back to us from the other side, any more than people in Isaiah's day knew who was speaking back when they supposedly contacted the dead. Now, I'm not saying that necromancy and surfing the internet are one and the same thing, but the dangers seem scarily similar, don't they? When we're afraid, we're very susceptible to suggestion. And too many Christians, especially today, they let their Bibles gather dust on their shelves while they indiscriminately consume what's only going to feed their anxiety and fear as they doom scroll another news feed or autoplay the next video and the next and the next, exchanging their discernment for an algorithm. Now, I know the Bible might not give us all the information we want, might not tell us exactly what we might want to know about how safe the vaccines are or where the coronavirus originated or it doesn't tell us exactly what we might want to know about why things are as they are in Afghanistan or in Haiti or in Australia for that matter. But the Bible, friends, gives us what we need to know. If you want to know truth, undeniable truth, it's here. Everything else has got to stand or fall based on this. And even when the world seems to be going crazy around us, the Bible reminds us of who's really in charge and what he's promised for those he loves and also what he's promised of those who reject him. So let me encourage you, before you pick up your phone in the morning or before you turn on the morning news, open your Bible. Be still before the Lord. Ask him to speak peace to you. Ask him to speak truth to you. You've got questions about what's going on? Pray about it and see what his word says. Ask for the faith to hear and trust and to live with a right fear of the Lord. Now, I'm reading at the moment um, Meredith Lake's excellent book, The Bible in Australia. It's a, it's a history of how the Bible has shaped cultural history in Australia. Really enjoying it. And, um, she references one particular pioneer somewhere in Western Australia, um, who was really struggling with a very, I mean, this isn't a comment on Western Australia generally, but this arid and barren land and his loneliness and how hard it was. And he said that unless he opened his Bible every day, he would go insane. Again, it's not a comment on, on life in Western Australia, but I think we can probably say the same for wherever we find ourselves. As we open our Bibles every day, I think we will go insane. And even when he seems to be hiding his face, even when God seems to be like he's on holiday and we're stuck in lockdown, wait for him. Hope in him. To the teaching and to the testimony should be our motto too. Cling to his word. Because the alternative is an endless night of distress, hunger, rage, gloom, and anguish. And I know which one I'll pick. This brings us to our third point, hope in his son, because thankfully God's word doesn't just bring clarity for the present, but it also brings us great hope for the future. Now it seems like we're in Isaiah's Christmas classics again, uh, with the promise about a child being born, but look at what the birth of the child signifies, and remember this is all connected to the promises of the Emmanuel child in chapter 7. 
It says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So there, there is light beyond the gloom. The lands in verse 1 might not mean much to us, but these are all the, the sort of northern uh, border countries of, um, of Israel, the, the northern kingdom. And these are the, the places which would have experienced the first onslaught of the Assyrian war machine as they invaded. But it's here at the place where God's judgment was most intense, miles from the temple in Jerusalem, that a new light will dawn. It's a place called Galilee. Of course, I'm sure you can see where this is going. But for now, it says that all the darkness, war, and judgment will be turned to light, peace, and joy. War will be a thing of the past. Battle gear will become redundant. Just like chapter 2, where swords were recycled into, into blades for plows, and spears were, were kind of repurposed as pruning hooks. And all of this will, be, will come about because of the birth of God's child, you know, one thing I love about this part of Isaiah, this whole first section, some people have called it the, the book of Emmanuel, about this child called God with us that's being born. I love how God chooses literally what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You've got a situation where people are terrified about great powers at work in their world. And what does God send? He sends babies. This is a very special child, and he's a child who stands in stark contrast to a faithless human king like Ahaz. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you remember the promises uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7, this is actually that king. It's coming up here. David's son, who would rule on God's throne over God's people forever. And one Bible teacher has pointed out that each of the, these titles that are given to the king, they all combine one human attribute with one divine attribute to show that this king will not just be man, but he'll be God himself. That is how the child can be the father and how he can be also God. And this is part of the point of the book of Isaiah. The only way anything's going to change is if God himself steps into the story. And he does. 
in the form of a child to establish a new kingdom of justice and righteousness and light and joy and peace. And you know, at, at, at its core here, this is a call to trust in Jesus. 700 years before the child was actually born, but this is a call to trust and hope in Jesus. It's a call to know that no, no matter what happens in this world, no matter how crazy and chaotic things are now, no matter how many people close to us or in positions of power let us down, no matter how hard it is to remember to fear the Lord and remember to cling to his word, no matter how black the night becomes, we can put our hope in the day that Jesus comes with glory and light to put an end to all of this and establish his kingdom forever. And now's the time to decide where you'll put your hope. In fact, he's the only hope we have. So friends, this is what we're called to. If we want to be part of God's faithful people, it's not about following the right whistleblowers or the right activists or the right YouTube channels, blog posts, those sorts of things. It's not even about having all the right information. It's about our relationship with a holy God. It's not ignorant to fear the Lord rather than the things of this world. It's not, it's not naive to cling to God's word, the Bible, as, a, as the measure of what is true. It's not wishful thinking to hope in his son. It's actually God's more concerned about our holiness than he is about our comfort. We're going to be comfortable forever in heaven with him. Right now he's concerned about preparing us for that day. He's not as much concerned about us having all the answers as he is of us knowing the truth. And he's concerned that we put our faith, our hope, nowhere else but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else, well, get that right first and then Let the rest take care of itself. So how do we make sense of all the crazy stuff that's happening around us? Well, the honest answer is that we might not make sense of it all. We might turn on the news tomorrow and something terrible has happened again and we might be just as confused tomorrow as we are today. But the Bible does tell us what to do. Three things. Fear God, cling to his word, and hope in his son. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you know us so well. You know what we need, and so you teach us these things in your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who can be trusted. We thank you that you are a God who is true, who is capable, and has proved your ability to do all these things in what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for giving in to fear and forgive us for not fearing you rightly. Please forgive us for searching everywhere else for truth except your word. And please forgive us for hoping everywhere else except in your son. Lord, give us your spirit today to reorder our fears, to help us to cling to your word 
and to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. And we're going to stand together and sing now. As we move to the end of our service, I think a very well-chosen song. So thanks, Vanessa. In Christ.